If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to begin today in verse number 5, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Last week we covered verses 1 through 4. So what we're going to do here is we're going to study verses 5 through 11, but we're going to start reading in verse number 1 so that we get the context. Here we go, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And here's where it begins to take off, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I love this verse 10. So at the name, so that at the name of, help me out church, Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven and on earth and on under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But there was something that happened this week that I think we need to take care of before we study this passage because if we don't, some of you may not get anything out of today's message. How many of you have heard the report that we have found ancient evidence that proves that Jesus had a wife. How many of you have heard of that discovery this week? Okay, a huge majority of us. I just want to take a few moments. We unpacked some of this on Wednesday night on how we as Christians should respond to this and also to other so-called discoveries that they will tell us uh, changes the face of Christianity. Number one, you may want to write this down. What they found was not the gospel of Jesus' wife. What was found was a Coptic fragment 1.5 inches by 3 inches long. Split a business card. But yet, the newspaper titles tell us that the gospel of Jesus' wife will reshape Christianity. And I'm thinking, bro, even if you can write really small, that's a lot to reshape all of Christianity. Okay, I want you to understand that that's the facts. Secondly, it is from the 4th century, and it's a Coptic, a specific language or a group of of Gnostic Christians. It is from the 4th century. Now, here's something very interesting if you are in college or if you have had someone tell you that the Bible has errors, that it is, it contains the Word of God, it's not actually the Word of God. Here's a question you need to ask everyone who challenges the truth of the Bible. Say, why is it that our early evidence from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the very oldest of those would be the writings of John in 90 or 95 A.D.? 
Jesus died in 30 or 33 AD. That means the oldest piece of evidence that we have separated from the main event is 65 years. You can go to the, to the Gospel of Mark that most scholars believe was written in the 40s. And not only that, but you're talking, I mean, if you ever studied history, that is so close to the original event that that is almost absolute historical certainty. Here's what they tell us. There's no proof that the Bible is true, but we have something from the 4th century that's early. Did you have your coffee this morning? You're tracking with me? 4th century Coptic text is early, but 1st century legitimate eyewitness text is not early or authoritative. That's called playing with the numbers. And for those of you who know the FDR quote on statistics, I will not belabor or go into the colorful language on that. Okay, Not only that, was it a Coptic text, but this is a group of people called the Gnostics. It was a Gnostic writing, and they wanted to create an alternate Christianity. The Gnostics would come and they would say, the only thing that really matters is, is the Gospel or the, the truth or the Word or the Logos. They would say, the truth kind of hits you and it does something to your spirit. But here's where it gets very, very interesting. They would say, your body is evil and it doesn't matter what you do with your body. That means that you can be a so-called follower of Christ, so they taught, and just live in sexual immorality. You can curse. I mean, you can live a totally unredeemed lifestyle because they say that your body doesn't have anything to do with your soul. And in the New Testament, you see things like the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 saying, present your bodies, especially for students, young people, we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. It does matter what we do with our bodies. And in fact, much of what Paul wrote against was the same type of Gnostic, perversion, twisted Christianity that we find in this 4th century text. Number three, Karen King, she's a professor at Harvard of early Christianity. But what some of the articles don't tell you is that she's involved in a radical feminist movement. Now, I want to clarify very carefully, I believe that the New Testament has the highest view of women than any book in the world. Jesus treated women differently. He treated them with dignity and respect and honor, but that is very different than today's feminism. So here's the thing. If you can find a so-called text that I will read to in just a few moments, experts believe it's not even legitimate. If you can bring forth a so-called gospel of Jesus' wife and you can change Christianity and you already have a driving political agenda, that seems very, very, very... um, It seems easy, right? It seems like it would fall in the line. Let me, let me read uh, to you from uh, this article from Huffington Post. Not exactly a right-wing publication. There's like two people who got that. All right. Stephen Immel, a professor of coptology at the University of Munster in Germany, who was on the international advisory panel that reviewed the 2006 discovery of the Gospel of Judas, said that the text accurately quotes Jesus saying, My wife... But he questioned whether the document was authentic. And he says this, There's something about this fragment in its appearance and also in the grammar of the Coptic that strikes me as not being completely convincing somehow. There's also a papriologist. They study ancient documents. Wouldn't that be a great job, right? That's all you do all day long in a room and you look at ancient documents. Can I get a no amen from the house? All right, so here's what he does. His name is Alan Susio, and he uses, he works at the University of Hamburg, which, by the way, the Germans are very good at textual uh, criticism and so forth. He was even more blunt. Here's what he said. I would say it's a forgery. The script doesn't look authentic when compared to other examples of Coptic 
papyrus script dated to the 4th century. So even if it's legitimate, it's from a group who's already trying to reinvent Christianity, but the scholars now are saying that it's not even legitimate to a group who's trying to delegitimize Christianity. There's also um, another professor, and his last name is Funk. Wouldn't that be a great name, right? Especially if you're a bass player. My last name is Funk, and I play the bass. So his name is Wolf Peter Funk, and he said that there are thousands of scraps of papyrus, the little uh, um, material, where you find crazy things. He says it can be anything, but he too doubted the authenticity, saying that the form of the fragment was suspicious. But if you're in the media business and you can put out an article or you can have an interview about the lost gospel of Jesus' wife is found, guess what you have? You have people who will read your newspaper. People will watch your show. When people buy more of your newspaper, when people watch more of your segment, your ratings go up and you get more money. It is not something that's grounded in fact. So I want to encourage you this morning, in case you've been shaken this past week, that often when they tell us discoveries have been made, it's not a discovery unless it's test the, passed the rigorous test of scholarship. It's gone through a peer-reviewed journal to where one professor from this university will write, I think it is or it's not legitimate. All of the other professors in that same field will give counter and pro-arguments so that it's just a bloodbath and all the professors are killing each other. And then through the crucible, you find what is really there. All right? And then if we're just in a casual conversation and people try to throw this out as a red herring, they try to throw this out to get you off track from Jesus, here's a response that you can give. You say, okay, you think that it's legitimate that Jesus was married. What does that have to do with Jesus' resurrection? So let that sink in. Pastor Jeff, are you saying there's evidence for Jesus being married? No. I think that would have kind of come out in the Bible, maybe, just a little bit. I mean, seriously? Like, you can laugh at that. Do you think that they're going to include Simon Peter becoming a traitor to Jesus? Like, the most embarrassing thing of all, but yet not include that Jesus had a wife when it was everybody. I mean, it was you, you just got married and had kids. That's what you did back then. You can tell somebody who tries to throw this up as a red, a red herring or a smokescreen and say, okay. Well, what does that have to do with Jesus' resurrection? It doesn't have any bearing on the fact that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy that was given for the Messiah. He is still the Son of God. And we can, we can even be really open-minded and let Him push us back on the ropes and say, you know what, we can even say that Jesus, if you want to say that Jesus had a wife, fine. But He still fulfilled every prophecy and He's still God because there's not anything wrong with being married. It's not a sin. And if you are married and you are a man, this is your time to look over and wink at your wife. Alright? Once again, we're not saying that Jesus was married or there's any evidence to that. But I just want to make sure that nobody gets thrown off their rocker because we're going to talk about Jesus this morning. And that may just be my nerdy ADHD, um, obsessive compulsive. It bothers me when people give dumb arguments. We got that out of the way. Let's jump into the message. Driving thought this morning, Philippians chapter 2, is how could you or I refuse such a Savior? Look at this in verse number 5. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the mind of Christ is what he would think, what he would do. Now, originally, these verses were, they were a hymn that the early church would sing. It would be a song that they would sing. Isn't that kind of cool? 
This was this is very early Christianity. Because some people will say, well, Christianity was changed later on so that people didn't worship Jesus when it started. But then the Apostle Paul began to say things like Jesus is deity and they later started to worship Him. No, this goes back to something that Paul heard when he came to the early church. It says that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's the question. How do we develop the mind of Christ? This is in your outline. We study how He thinks by examining what He says. We look to Scripture. Um, I don't know if y'all, if y'all, if you don't know Him, you need to get to know Him. Uh, one of my favorite people in all the world. Um, he's he, he's about this tall, and his name is Sammy. Sammy Sweat. It's a little. That's his sister. She's very proud of Sammy. Uh, by the way, I there may. I would love to work in the nursery just so I get to hang out with Sammy. Amen, nursery people? Like, that is good stuff. He's an awesome little guy, and, and he's so cute. And this morning we were uh, warming up in here. He had a little Bible, and he was opening his Bible and kind of like flipping through it like a little man. It was so awesome. And how, how old is Sammy? He's two. So he's a very intelligent child. But seriously, it looked like an adult just kind of like, you know, just flipping through the Bible like, okay, where am I going to read? And I thought about that. I said, man, that, that should be me. That should be us. Like, get into the Word of God. You know, sometimes we can we can learn all of these things and learn how to uh, undercut 4th century Coptic texts and so forth. But if we don't stay in the Word of God, we'll be separated from the power of God. It says, have the mind of Christ in you. And this is one way that you can translate this verse as well. Let the same kind of thinking dominate you as dominated Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, write this reference down. Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The mind of Christ. You know, every single one of us is going to adopt a thinking pattern. Have you ever noticed how different people respond to situations a different way? Like if something is said to a person and the person has had, has been saved, they've responded in grace to Jesus Christ, they've realized that they are not defined by what other people say about them, but what God says about them. You notice how that person can take sometimes a comment that's not said in the right way and receive it and absorb it in grace and give forgiveness. You take another person that has not adopted the mind of Christ and when something is said or something is done that may be the least bit incorrect, they fly off the handle. We're not going to ask for a show of hands this morning if you know someone like that. But the mind of Christ is absolutely selfish. And we'll unpack uh, what's, what that's going to look like. Um, the John Barry song, for those of you who are John Barry song uh, fans, What's In It For Me. You ever heard that song before? What's in it for me, I have to ask. And he begins, the whole song is like, before I get into this or before I take this action, I want to know what's in it for me. And you know what I want Rocky Mount Baptist Church to continue to become? We need to become a church that thinks selflessly. I bragged on y'all last week about the new uh, line item that we have in our budget called the Great Commission Fund. It's a line item that every year we're going to have money in that to say outside of people giving special love offerings, outside of anything else, we are budgeting to do missions, not just here, but overseas. Do you know that the focus of the New Testament is not how many people we can get here on a Sunday morning, but how many people we can send out to change the world? You know, often it, we, we judge our success, don't we? 
And we're so glad to have uh, Flores and Mary. You guys joined last week. That was so great. We love y'all. And we're glad that you joined up with this official. Sometimes we can, we can gauge our effectiveness as a church or, or from a sermon by how many people come down on a Sunday morning or how many people we have show up. Do you know what really the ultimate criteria of whether we are a success, whether we have the mind of Christ, is how many people we send out during the week to help spread the gospel and have people's lives changed? I was so blessed yesterday when we, uh, when Sue and, and Ben and I were able to go to the jail and have the Bible study with those guys. A book that was given to uh, one of the prisoners that Sue had given him the other week. It's a book by Adrian Rogers called What Every Christian Should Know. Sometimes when you give away books, I mean, you don't know if anybody's going to read them. And even in jail, um, you find sometimes you give, you would think that they would have a lot of time, but sometimes they don't get around to reading it. You gave the book to the guy and he said, you know, have you been able to read any of the book? And he said, man, there's this one part. And he turns to the page number and had to deal with doubt and your walk with Christ. And he read the whole section. I cannot tell you how much that blessed my heart. He'd give me a thousand dollars. But to have a guy, um, have a guy who has tattoos that spell a story. By the way, um, if you're talking with someone and they've got tattoos and you don't know if they're, if they're saved or not, ask them what they mean. We didn't do this yet in the jail, but it's a great way to intro into a conversation. And he reads, he reads the Bible. He, he reads the section there that comes from Adrian Rogers' book and how it impacted his life. And to see broken men who have, been, who have come to their knees... They've tried to live outside the law. They've tried to live for themselves. But Jesus Christ has humbled them through the justice system. And the fact that you support that ministry, I want you to know that we may not know this side of heaven, but through your ministry and through your support of allowing us to send people most of the time every week on Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock to talk to local guys. They're from Boone's Mill. They're from the lake. They're from Henry County, Pennsylvania County. They're, they're people. They're us. But it could be that the Holy Spirit changes their heart when they're in prison and in jail here rather. And when they go out, they can be changed men. They'll get a job. They'll refuse the, the temptation to go back to the life of crime. And they'll be there for their children. One of the guys said that the, the week before, he was able to talk to his little son for the first time in two years. And the kid said on the phone, are you my dad? He said, yeah, I'm your dad. When we pour into people like that, that that is the mind of Christ. And we've gone over this many times. I pray that we destroy this with a million sledgehammers of grace. That we as Rocky Mount Baptist Church do not go into the community looking for people who have stable jobs and good incomes. So they'll come and they'll sit and they'll tithe and they'll give us more money just so we can do ministry. We, hey, if you're rich, we would love to have you, but you need to be saved. If you're poor, we'd love to have you, but you need to be saved if you have not been. But Jesus always went with the people who had no social standing. It's interesting. And when he went to the top dog's house, he would call him out in front of everybody. 
So I pray that as we continue to push and to reach people for God's glory, that He would take away what is embedded in so many churches. When we read about the mind of Christ, they say, oh, we need people who are going to take care of us. No, we need to go find the most messed up, jacked up, dysfunctional cops. Know where they live because they've been there so many times. The people who are alcoholics, the men who beat their wives, the wives who run around their husbands. That's who we need to go for. And it may be that when they come here, it may make church people a little uncomfortable. But if you've ever been around somebody who makes you uncomfortable because they may be of a lower social class, just let that remind us of how our sin is to God and how He has forgiven us through the grace of Jesus Christ. May it never be in my heart or our heart that we look down at anybody. Amen? The mind of Christ, which is self-sacrifice, Go with me to verse number 6. It says the form of God. Now, for our thinkers in here, your wheels are already spinning. So let me include it in the outline. What does in the form of God actually mean in verse 6? This is from A.T. Robertson's word study of the Greek New Testament. And I quote, and this is cool. I'm going to introduce this. If you were not a child of the 90s, you may this this may be lost on you. I'm going to do it. I, I how many of you know what the Power Rangers are? Let me see. Honesty? Honesty. Okay. How many of you, when you were a kid, you watched the Power Rangers? Let's have some honesty. Okay. Now that was awesome because we had some of like the, like the half hand raised. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, did you listen to MC Hammer when you were in sixth grade or whenever it was? Yes. You know, or, 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 uh, anyway, I'm not going to go down that. Yeah, by the way, in the nineties, you had all sorts of people and they had like one hit. Remember that? They'd have like one hit and they never heard of them again. It's like, you seem like, dude, that was an awesome hit. And anyway, so the, the word here in the Greek, this is very cool, is morphe. It, it literally means, this, this comes from the notes. Morphe means the essential attributes as shown in the form. In his pre-incarnate state, that's a big word for Jesus before he came as an infant. In his pre-incarnate state, Christ possessed the attributes of God and so appeared to those in heaven who saw him. Here is a clear statement by Paul of the deity of Jesus Christ. And let me give you several statements from the New Testament that corroborate uh, this claim. John chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So, according to this text, some people come to it and say, now, alright, okay, so if, if Jesus is in the form of God, then that may mean that He's like less than God. No, it means that Jesus came as a human. Jesus was God in the flesh. Alright? We all clear on that? This is not teaching that Jesus, when He came to be born, stopped being God. Another question. Did Jesus begin to exist? No. Jesus always existed with the Father, the Holy Spirit, from um, as far back as time goes. Some people say this. Well, God created the world because He got lonely. You ever heard that before? God created the world because He wanted kind of something to do. That is not true. God, by definition, go with me on this, thinkers, God, by definition, is the maximally great being. God has no need. In other words, God is wholly sufficient in Himself 
for everything. That means that God could have never created the world and He would have been fine. He did. That allows us to know about His nature. But some people will say, well, He did it so that He could have friends. That's simply not true. In fact, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, there is fellowship, there is communion within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so that God doesn't need anyone else. And if you have more questions about the Trinity, we've got all of that uh, uploaded online. You can go uh, check that out to your heart's content. So here's a few truths that need to sink in as we unpack this text further. Number one, Jesus laid down His rights. He exchanged the glory He deserved for the punishment that others deserved. Look at verse 6. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here's what that means. It means that Jesus, in all of His humility... And all of His power, even though He is God, He did not view that as something to be grasped at like a greedy thing. If you've ever seen... uh, This is really letting my nerdness come out this morning. If you've seen Lord of the Rings and Bilbo Baggins, when when Frodo comes back in with the ring, and he sees the ring that basically terrorized his mind and enraptured his soul, and and he sees it, and they did that really scary CGI effect where he jumps out and he says, Mine! And his face just like turns in like a demon. Like, whoa! You know, that's... That's, that's a, not here, but when I was growing up, like, that's one of my nursery workers. Wow! And it just goes out and it's, it's scary. He went out and said, my, I want to have that. I want to grasp that. I want to have it for myself. It means that Jesus did not use his rightful status for his own advantage. Let's stop here for just a moment. We live in a world today and we're absolutely drunk and high off of our rights. Local level, State level, national level, we all want to talk about what we deserve. Bill of Rights is an awesome thing. What we deserve as Americans and as people. But I think it's interesting that Jesus deserved everything, but yet for the benefit of others, He laid down everything that He had. Did you know that the true test of our character is not when people use us poorly, but when they affirm us? One of my professors said that perfume is fine as long as you don't swallow it. Think about that. Perfume is fine as long as you don't swallow it. Have you known of people before and they've kind of been beat up on in life and then they get a position of power, kind of like the Barney Fife syndrome? And once they get that position of power, they get that affirmation. They think that they own everything and they are better than everybody. The character of Christ is the opposite. Which in fact, and this is as I pray, as God gives me grace, this is the way I want to deal with any controversy or things that happen um, with me and my ministry in the future. I want to adopt what David had when Shimei cursed him. Here's the story. David, king of Israel. Shimei, crazy old man. David is retreating before his son um, Absalom who's coming to kill him. You know what Shimei does? He follows at a distance and he begins to throw rocks. He begins to throw dirt. He begins to throw, I mean, dust in the air. He begins to call down curses on David. You know what David's men say? Who is this dog that he should curse the king? Let me go over and take his head off. You know what David said? He's the king. He could have done it. No problem. David said, God has appointed him to curse me so that I will not be unduly exalted or exalted above due measure. Now let's stop. Think of the last time that you have had an argument, the last time you've had a real bad scuffle with somebody. Not necessarily physical, because I do believe you need to defend yourself. There's a place for that. 
talking about just the, the drama that most of us experience. The proper response for a follower of Jesus Christ is if God is totally sovereign and in control of everything, God could have stopped this person from coming into my office. God could have stopped this confrontation from happening. But God allowed it, whatever you say, caused it. It happened. So through this, I can learn humility. Because Jesus Christ was the one who was ultimately innocent. All right? Jesus never did anything that was wrong, but yet Jesus got, people gave Jesus more Hades than they did to the criminals. They're like, kill Jesus, let Barabbas the murderer go. But yet Jesus absorbed all of that, and through grace and through forgiveness, He made it possible for even His enemies to be saved. Do you know what I want my response to be when someone may come in? And y'all have been an awesome church. Like I haven't really had this. But if someone comes into my office and they, preacher, and they just, just go off on me, you know what my response should be? God has appointed this person so that I need to learn humility. I need to know the character of Christ. I need to know what it is like. And here's something too. Sometimes God can bring us people who will point out blind sides. But we're talking about if we're in the clear, if we're innocent. And that person comes and they just waylay, I mean, they just lay into us like a high school team in a buffet. I mean, just like, boom, just destroying it. And our response should be, I should learn humility from this. And here's the awesome thing. When you look in the book of Matthew, and if they're mad at you because of your stand for Jesus Christ, it says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then Jesus says, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Now that's not the way I want to respond. How about you? The mind of Christ... Ultimate humility. The mind of Jeff, let's take it outside. Y'all don't feel that way? I'm talking to somebody comes in and they, they, they have found the manual to where all of your buttons are and they have got every finger on a button. They are just pushing them and you can, you know, you know they're doing it. You know why they're doing it. I'm not saying put yourself in a situation like, Lord Jesus, I pray today that you would send someone to torture me. Give me thorns in the flesh, dear God. No, we shouldn't do that. But when they come, think of what Jesus did. And it's such a freeing thing when we can respond like David against Shimei instead of responding in retaliation with saying, you know what? And just sit there and take it like a hoss. For the glory of God. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. Say, what just got, it just got louder and louder. We got madder and madder. We argue, argue, argue. Okay, soft answer. Admit when you're wrong. You're right. Is there anything else? Thank you for showing me that. It will totally... I mean, you talk about watching a boxing match, somebody getting caught on the chin, and they begin to stumble. That will make someone stumble when you thank them for having enough concern for you to point out the problem. That's probably not why they were coming to do it. But when we take the knee in humility, we do what Jesus did. Now, notice here in verse number 7, here's what He did. But made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Jesus became a carpenter. 
He had to work with his hands. He experienced what it was like to sweat. He experienced what it was like. I don't know if they had angry customers. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today because you may be too tired to raise it if you've ever worked in customer support. Can I get a witness in the church this morning? You know what I'm talking about? Like your job is to act like everything's fine and you love this person and you're just thinking of a Rambo movie the whole time. And they're coming in. I love what Tim Hawkins said when he said, I used to work at a rental car place and a man came in and he was said... Well, and he didn't, he didn't have the right car. And then he said, well, does the car have heated seats? And then he, he just said, well, if you do this, he began to move around his rear end like on the seat. If you want to heat up your own seat. I love Like that's the way that we think. Like, go ahead and heat your own seat. Hoss, go for it. But when we experience those types of things, we understand that Jesus was in human flesh. This should revolutionize our prayer life. Why? If Jesus lived as a human being, not only that, but He lived as a persecuted minority group, the Jews, in a totalitarian regime, the Roman Empire. The Senate was just for show. It was really whatever Caesar wanted to do. All right, That was that was it. after Julius Caesar. And I think that Brutus and those guys were the good guys. We can talk about uh, history another time because Shakespeare liked kings. I'm not a big fan of kings. And I don't need to start getting into my American patriotism this morning because, you know, somebody will, you know, like raise a gun. We're in Virginia. So anyway. All right. So, but we're speaking of the humility. Now think about what Jesus did when he came. He subjected himself to human flesh. Imagine. You are Jesus. Weird thought. And you're 12, and your parents have left you. They forgot you. You're there in the temple. You're teaching the leaders. Wouldn't that be cool, right? Like Jesus is there. He's a student of the law, and he's teaching the teachers. And then you're Mary and Joseph's parents, and you realize that you have left Jesus. Talk about a big boo-boo. Mary turns to Joseph. She says, Joseph... We don't have any recorded words of Joseph in the Bible, so maybe he was a man of few words. Yes, honey. Yeah. Do you know where Jesus is? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And they begin to go out through it, and they, he's with no one in the traveling caravan. And then the thought hits you, parents, I have just lost the Messiah. God came to us and He said, I'm going to give the Messiah through you. You're going to give birth and you're going to raise Him. But I just, I just screwed up the whole universe. I just lost God. Oh no. So, so they go back and then she goes into the temple and then He said, where were you? And Jesus says, I must be about my Father's business. Factual, respectful, honoring answer. If we had been in Jesus' place, we could have said something like, I made you. I own you. I'm God. I don't get lost in my own universe. Thank you very much, Mom. And be smart aleck like that. But Jesus even subjected Himself to the law. He subjected Himself to His parents' authority. Students, Jesus subjected Himself to His parents' authority. Jesus subjected Himself to His parents' authority. Alright? Once again, we talked about this last week. If you've got a teenage guy and he's bad to the bone, say, well, go pay for it. Pay for your car, pay for your insurance, pay for your cell phone bill and see how bad you are. Then, If you can do that, fine. But don't don't bite the hand that, that feeds you. Seriously, though, so I don't want to be pedantic about this. Like, honestly, if your parents are, are still living, honor them. If you've had issues in the past, honor them. It's not honoring necessarily things that they do if they have a very sketchy background or things that they have not done that they should have. But God tells you to honor the fact that they are your parents and in doing that you honor, you honor God.
Jesus demonstrated his servantness, his servanthood, by picking up a towel and washing people's feet. Think about this. Jesus Christ, you've always existed. You hold all authority and all power. And then you come and you subject yourself to be born as a baby, as a human baby, and you obey the Father, and then you obey up to the point of crucifixion. All of us have things that tick us off, even the very meek and mild and sweet ones among us. But I would think for all of us, somewhere between point A, that being Judas's betrayal, all the way until the Roman soldier plunged the spear into the heart of Jesus, we would have lost it had we been innocent like Him. And Jesus is there on the cross. People have no mercy even then. They begin to wag their heads. They begin to call down curses upon Jesus. See, get yourself down off the cross. And even the one thief had no mercy if you've seen the Passion of the Christ. A great, great, great historical retelling of that event. And you are Jesus. And the ones that you are dying for are the ones putting you to death. What Jesus said in, in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no man than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. You know, there are stories, Saving Private Ryan and war stories where brave men even now as we fight terrorism around the world, even if the current administration doesn't want to call it terrorism, it, it, it is. That's what they, they call it on the other side. There are people, men and women, who have died to save their fellow soldiers. But Jesus was dying for the ones who were His enemies and His quote-unquote friends. The closest that any of them came to support was John, who stood with Mary, the mother of Jesus, at a distance. Jesus was not like we see on pictures and on movies with a loincloth. Jesus was absolutely without any clothes and He was hanging there in front of God on the whole world. And God the Father poured out every bit of wrath He had against our sin upon Jesus. And Jesus didn't deserve any of it. And notice it says He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit, and He gave it up. And He died. Can you imagine what it was like in hell? They said, we killed the Son of God. He came to rescue His people, but we killed Him. He's dead. Stay. Yes! As they plunged His spear in and the blood and the water poured out. As they brought Jesus' body down and they put it in a cold tomb, He was absolutely dead. And all of hell had to be rejoicing because we have won. The One who raised people from the dead is dead. The One who healed people from diseases is dead. We moved upon the Romans. We moved upon the Jewish leaders. And we have killed the Son of God. And you can imagine Satan, the most arrogant being in the universe, had to be brimming with pride. Then three days later, power of God raised Jesus from the dead. And He came out not as a staggering half-dead person, but the one who came back risen from the dead. And Jesus, it says in verse 9, Therefore God has exalted Him. means lifted Him up and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, the Son of God, the King of the world, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. That means that Jesus is the King. It means that He is Lord of lords. It means that He is 
cross. It doesn't matter what people say about Him. He is the King. He is the One who can forgive every sin we've ever committed. It is Jesus the One that the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers look forward to saying, I know God's going to send somebody. We look back seeing what Jesus has done. If you have marriage problems this morning, Jesus Christ can fix it. He can. Whether you say amen or not, or you're not sure if you're supposed to, Jesus Christ can fix it. Jesus Christ still heals today. He doesn't always heal, but He can. We believe that Jesus Christ is the One who is God in the flesh. And because He is, because He has so much love, that means that I should give my life to Him. That means I should honor Him with my time. Because notice what it says here in verse number 10. That every knee should bow in heaven. That means all of the believers who are in heaven, all of the angels, and on the earth, everybody who's still alive under the earth, the demons and the unsaved dead, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, every intellectual objection against Jesus Christ will be met face to face with Jesus. The final proof of Christian theism, the final nail in the coffin against atheism and agnosticism. If you have doubts here today, I'm telling you that Jesus is the one who can save you and Jesus is the one who can transform your life and Franklin County. And the question is, how much do we believe that? I don't know about you, sometimes I've just been so convicted by how weak my prayers are. God, would you give so-and-so strength? Would you help them? Lift them up? Why don't we just ask God to come in and go blockbuster and just bust down walls? Why don't we ask, why don't some of you grandparents and and, and parents ask, God, I want you to do whatever needs to be done in my child's life. You may already be praying this. Say, God, I want you to change him. Please change him. But the question for all of us is, what have we done with Jesus? That's it. What have you done with Jesus? Is he an add-on to your life? Is he a Sunday morning activity? Or have you been truly born again and truly saved? Most of us remember the tsunami in 2004. I was watching a, a, a show, and it was a live camera feed at the time when the waves were about to roll in. And there was a person out on the beach. When you think about tsunami, it's just a mind-blowing amount of violent water and death. And I don't know if this person didn't get the memo, what was happening, but they were out on the beach. No one else was out there. And this was kind of from a higher viewpoint. And, and it was about five seconds before the waves came. And it was like I looked at the TV and I said, what are you doing? Like, what, what, what in the, what in the world are you doing? What, no, not one! Get out of there! I couldn't believe it. I was like, this, this has gotta be made up. It was real. Somebody was really there. In the same way, y'all, I don't want to be leave this on a downer note, but judgment is coming. That kind of sounds like one of the old preachers, doesn't it? Like back in the day, they'd stand up, they'd get all worked up, red in the face, and y'all, oh, they'd hit the pulpit, and you're like, whoa, wow, oh, all right, I guess this is real. But seriously, judgment day is coming. There's going to be every knee that will bow, every tongue confess before Jesus Christ. And the question for each and every one of you, I don't care if I have baptized you since I have been here. I don't care if I've prayed with you to receive Christ. I'm asking you right now, is there the witness of the Holy Spirit deep within your heart, deep within your soul, that you've truly been born again and you've truly bowed the knee in absolute, unconditional surrender to Jesus? And if that has not happened, right now is the time to do it.